You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022. This is episode number 241. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about... 50 years ago today, Congress's own expert commission demanded they repeal marijuana prohibition, jointly helps employees pay for joints, descheduler bust, says some U.S. House reps, a free Britney G update, a cool consumption lounge coming to WeHo, an EPA memo to Marijuana Policy Coordination Committee, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. I'm going to start off the show today with my story. So just like uh, Shikari Richardson's case got the World Anti-Doping Agency to revisit their policy for the Olympics, my hope is that Brittany Griner's case will help the U.S. government to take a harder look at its drug policies. This headline from Bloomberg dives into that. The headline is, Pot Lobby Highlights Russia Arrest to Push for U.S. Reform. From the article, Greiner has been kept in Russia since February 17th when a drug-sniffing dog at a Moscow airport helped detect hashish oil in her luggage. That's the first uh, reference I've heard to a drug-sniffing dog. Not sure what that means, but it's interesting. She was subsequently arrested on charges of drug smuggling. As her detention wears on, some compare her to a hostage taken in Russia's war on Ukraine. The U.S. Cannabis Council arranged over 60 meetings with politicians and 20 CEOs from some of the biggest cannabis companies last week. Nick Kovacevic, chief executive officer of Greenlane 
Holdings, Inc., a Boca Raton, Florida-based maker of custom vaporizers, packaging, and cannabis accessories, said the current U.S. situation makes it hard for the country to, to press for her release. Quote, at the same time, we have 2,700 nonviolent cannabis prisoners here in the U.S. How can we do the right thing to get her released in Russia when we're not following through on campaign promises to get people released stateside? Unquote. I'm not sure about that 2,700 number. It sounds a little low to me, but if you've got information on that, let me know. Again, from the article, last week, just as it was reported that Griner's detention has been extended to May 19th, Kovacevic brought up the situation with about half a dozen lawmakers from both parties. He found that they were receptive. Quote, I don't think people have been aware of the dynamic and how it could force the action, force action from the executive branch. Kovacevic said, referring to the irony of Russia holding one person for a cannabis-related crime while the U.S. is still holding thousands even after many states have legalized it. That article goes on to talk about the CEOs, talked a lot about safe banking, but the war on Ukraine has Washington's calendar jam-packed. I uh, suggest that you read it. There's another article uh, from Marijuana Moment that digs in a little deeper. The headline is American Basketball star Brittany Griner's cannabis arrest in Russia prompts top U.S. officials to speak out. Here's some highlights from that article. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told reporters that the U.S. doesn't have direct access to Griner. Why? And that may be a violation of international law. Russia has condemned Canada for legalizing cannabis nationwide and has taken a strong position against reform at the U.N., Two Congress members, Burgess Owens, Republican Utah, and Byron Donalds, Democrat Florida, sent the following letter to the Biden administration. Quote, every American, regardless of their race, gender, or socioeconomic status, must adhere to the rules of every sovereign nation. While we are not here to call balls and strikes on Russian law, we are very concerned about Mrs. Griner's detention under the current and rapidly deteriorating circumstances in Russia and Eastern Europe. As the situation in, uh, continue the quote, as the situation in Russia and Ukraine continues to deteriorate rapidly, we are deeply troubled by the Russians' handling of the unfortunate case regarding Brittany Griner. Mrs. Griner made a mistake in violating Russia's illegal substance laws, but her crime doesn't match the unjust punishment she faces as a pawn of the Russian government. As Putin runs his country into the ground, the United States government must ensure that no American falls hostage to a heinous and deranged dict dictator, unquote. What the hell? Did they just throw her under the bus? How about she allegedly made a mistake? This story, this situation is going to remain a big headline until it's resolved. It's time the United States take a look in the mirror and admit to ourselves that the drug war is a war on black and brown people and that it needs to end. How can we condemn other countries for doing what we're doing? Leadership should include being a good example. Free Brittany. Uh, I, I certainly agree that it is unjust punishment and uh, you know, for... For it to be signaled from the states that it's unjust punishment, I think should force any politician to look at how are we punishing our nonviolent cannabis uh, users or possessors in the United States. We have plenty that have had nominal amounts of cannabis that have sentences 
longer than 10 years. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a conundrum for the politicians here. Rico, is her new nickname in the WNBA going to be the mule now? Um, Using that term, the mule, is actually racist, Jason. (laughs) So, no, it's not going to be. Susan, I think that... um, them saying that she made a mistake is 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 way out of bounds. Period. We haven't yeah. even gotten the the details of anything that's even exactly. come out of this fucking case. Like, like, why the fuck would they even say that? That's what, that's, that's, that's 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 really infuriating. Rico, that's what I was going to say. Have we even confirmed the fact that she was actually in possession of? Because I thought there was some conversation about the fact that she. Like, we don't know if she really actually had it. Maybe it was planted. Maybe, you know, so I don't know if it's even confirmed that she had what they said that she had. I did see some video video footage of the actual uh, actual search, and it looks like they did pull it out of her bag. But whether that footage was doctored or not, I don't know. I'm not the judge or jury on this. Just what I saw. Right. And, and for them to say that she made a mistake, like, why the fuck would they say that? I've had drugs planted on me by cops, so it happens. Yeah, through and through, and we weren't given any other context around that that grainy video that we all saw or, or most of us saw. So I don't know, man. Like, there's a lot of fishy shit going on. Uh, we're in the fog of war, and she's being used as a pawn right now. Um, what I'm also a little upset about is there's not a lot of people like rallying around her either. There's a lot of, a lot more people. I know it was the the Olympics versus, you know, the WNBA off season, but there's not a lot of public people like rallying around her. Like we did see with Shakari Richardson. Um, I hope people do step it up and I'm coming to her back, especially when people are saying that, Oh yeah, she made a mistake. No, she didn't make a mistake. We don't know that. We don't have enough facts. We don't have enough information. And it's very disappointing. Do y'all, do y'all believe that 2,700 number? We, we only have 2,700 people in the U.S. locked up for nonviolent cannabis crimes? No. no that number is no. false. No. The last prisoner project regularly uses, I think it's 40,000 or in the neighborhood of 40K. Well, I personally don't see this story going away until she's home. I hope it does, and I hope it gets amplified. Go ahead. You brought up some really good points, Rico. I mean, it's like, you know, Shikari was kind of honored as a hero, and she seems to be uh, more villainized here. Well, it's yeah. touchy because of the war, right, Jason? Just, you know. Yeah, well, well, I mean, that just that just adds, adds, adds on to it. I think whether or not we were at war or not, I think this, this still ultimately would have played out. I don't think they just decided to just, like, choose her. You know what I mean? Because because of the war, um, I think this this would have happened regardless. Um, but I do um, agree with your sentiments, Rico, and I really would like to see some NBA players and others come out in a more public forum in support. But you know what? It might be getting in their bag, too, because a lot of people do make a lot of money off of Russia. And that's the touchy subject nobody really wants to talk too much about with the whole Russia-Ukraine situation, why a lot of people are silent, is a lot of people are making money off of Russia and a lot of people just don't want to speak out against it. Right, but to say that she made a mistake, oh my God, and that's an official letter 
from Congress members to the Biden administration. Just so sloppy. Anyway, I believe it's going to be a story we'll be talking about a lot, and we've gone way over time, so we're going to keep on moving. So up next, we've got Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? I actually got some good news today, Susan. So mine's uh, coming out of Benzinger from Helena Martinovich. And um, the title is Cannabis Company Jointly Offers Purposeful Cannabis Consumption as Part of Employee Wellness Benefit Program. Los Angeles-based cannabis and CBD wellness experience tracking app Jointly announced recently a new employee wellness benefit program mainstreamers should take note of. Going forward, they'll be covering costs for purposeful cannabis consumption. According to Benzinga, jointly we'll be reimbursing up to $150 per month for lawful purchases of cannabis products, setting a new standard for retaining and and attracting top talent in the cannabis industry, the software industry, and beyond. Jointly co-founder Eric Gutschals quoted in the article saying, this new benefit developed with our legal tax and HR advisors provides employees with a budget to pursue better well-being with the option of including purposeful cannabis consumption. This first-of-its-kind program is not only aligned with Jointly's core mission and beliefs, but also helps break the stigma and start a new conversation around cannabis and wellness. Come to think about it, I've worked with and for uh, several cannabis companies at this point in my career and have no idea why this has never been offered. I mean, I've never I've been given plenty of free weed from clients. I've been gifted free products for several projects I've been part of, um, but it's never been offered as an actual benefit. Um, I think this benefit program is as much genius marketing their app as it's dumbfounding to hear they're the first ones that actually do it. If that's actually true, uh, in addition to the $150 monthly weed allowance, jointly employees also get reimbursed for more mainstream wellness activities like gym memberships and yoga classes. You know, the other shit that their empl- employees are probably doing high anyways. At first, I wanted to say this shit seems like a dream job for me. Uh, but after thinking about it, shouldn't all workplaces offer a basic cannabis budget for their employees, uh, especially in our industry? Either way, shout out to jointly for coming up with the weed wellness program and uh, even if it's just a publicity stunt to promote their platform hopefully it'll influence other companies to follow suit this is rico lamit dopest dad on the street reporting for the state of cannabis news hour and love to hear y'all's thoughts on this as well when we're we getting some uh, a weed budget monthly susan um free weed for anybody that wants to come on over come on over long rico, beach did it no, say no how one wants to talk how much they were given what's that did it say how much? 150, it's $150 uh, uh, allowance, like a week, uh, monthly weed allowance. I think this is so great. I just, I, I think more companies should start doing it, especially cannabis companies. And I'm interesting to see if like um, other tech companies will start doing that, especially in like legalized states. Like, is it anybody else like like not surprised? No other companies have even done this yet. Like, it just seems like a no brainer. Well, I would wonder, and I would need a lawyer's perspective on this, can the company get in trouble for giving money for a federally illegal substance to their employees? They can give the money to their employees, and what the employees choose to do with it is at their own behest. Yeah, but the money is allotted to go to an illegal... I I think it's allotted allotted to pay for wellness treatments. It's not 150 (laughs) bucks to do what you want, right? It's 150 bucks to buy weed. 
It depends on how it depends on how you write that shit off. Get a good accountant, right, I guess. <laughs> If you're a multi-state company. It's wages. I mean, it it has to be wages. That's all all it is. And no, it's not the first company that's ever done this. A a ton of retailers use the staff gram as a way to get, you know, uh, good quality um, sellers at their stores. And it's been going on in California for years. I mean, you know, maybe not in tech, right? I mean, that's kind of weird. But, you know, retailers have been doing the staff gram for a long time and had to find creative ways to get around the prohibitions that the Department of Cannabis Control put on them or, you know, the BCC, um, you know, when Malcursa came into play. So what you're saying, Lara, is jointly is a bunch of liars. Yeah, it's a publicity stunt. I mean, maybe they're the first in tech, uh, but it's definitely not the first in California cannabis. They do offer yoga and other things, too. So it seems like they're trying to make it broad, at least. That's also be inclusive. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying. Chads. All right. Coming up next, coming to the stage next, is the industry's very own Kaiser Brose. He enjoys mink coats, long trips on the private jet, and, of course, triggering the libs. Coming to the stage next is the industry's longest continuously running retailer, the man, the myth, legend himself, Mr. White Gucci, Jason Beck. What you got for us, my man? What's up? Good morning, Rico. Happy Taco Tuesday, everybody. Um, today, my story comes out of D.C., where the headline reads, U.S. House representatives call on United Nations to deschedule pot. But I'll tell you, the headline really should read as this. The UN, U.S. pushes the U.N., to amend its international treaties while still not being able to get the job done at home. That's right. U.S. Representative Representative Nancy Mace, a Republican from South Carolina, and Congresswoman Barbara Lee, a Democrat from California, introduced a resolution on Friday instructing the United Nations to deschedule cannabis from Schedule 1 of the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs of 1961 and treat cannabis as a commodity similar to other agricultural commodities. In a quote, many countries would deschedule cannabis and reevaluate how cannabis is classified if the U.N. did so, May said. Cannabis has been shown to be effective in the treatment of numerous medical conditions such as epilepsy, PTSD, cancer, pain relief, nausea, and chronic and terminal illness. Descheduling at the U.N. would support global research into how cannabis can treat a wide range of ailments and conditions. Barbara Lee said that scientific research has shown that cannabis has a wide-ranging positive effects on chronic illness treatment and the classification of cannabis as a schedule one drug is outdated out of touch and should be addressed not only in the United States, but around the world. The United States should be leading the way on cannabis reform on the global stage and descheduling at the United Nations would be a great start. Lee said in the press release, a treaty that aims to combat drug abuse by coordinated international action. The single convention of narcotic drugs has more than 60 signatories. There are two forms of intervention and control that work together. First, it seeks to limit the possession, use, and trade in trade in distribution, import, export, manufacture, and production of drugs exclusively to medical and scientific purposes. Secondly, it combats drug trafficking through international cooperation to deter and discourage drug traffickers, according to a description of the Treaty of the United Nations website. Well, I'll tell you what, I think this is a great optics uh, for, for, the, uh, for the two congresswomen. I think it's fantastic that they went and did this. But I'll tell you what, I think it would have meant a lot more had it come from Canada since they've already federally de- descheduled cannabis. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I think it was uh, two 
December's ago, the United Nations and the um, and was it UN and the I don't know um, like the G eight or some shit like that. They came together and they said that they were going to deschedule it. They're going to dig it from the uh, the international decriminalization decriminalization. They routinely bring this up every year at the UN. Um, some type of way to try and deschedule it never goes anywhere. No, they, um, they vote. No, they actually voted on it like two right, years ago. Right. I wrote a story on it. They did something a couple of years ago, but it still didn't do anything. Um, and I see, you know, this position, frankly, from Nancy Mace and Barbara Lee as another indication of Congress will do nothing for us. Uh, so they're grasping at straws because this measure is not going to work either. This is freaking a publicity stunt. UN's not going to move on uh, their resolution, but it was nice for them to put it forward. You sound a little anti-Nancy Mace there. I'm not anti-Nancy. I'm anti-bullshit. Uh, I'm anti-not doing <laughs> stuff that's not going to get done. I'm for. I'm all for Republicans and for people being out there trying to do different things. And I like that she's in the fight, but I just like people who have, you know, actual plans that can get done. I like Jason's suggestion. Why doesn't Canada step up and really, since you've legalized and decriminalized, why haven't you pushed the envelope and pushed the United Nations to make some changes that will maybe help the U.S. catch up? U.S. is always catching up. U.S. catch up. New brand. Shout out to One of the amazing exports available from the United States of America. Shout out to Heinz. (laughs) I think we're at time, but I'm trying to bring Rez up from the audience. Did you want to weigh in on uh, Rico's headline, Reswin? Yeah, I was just going to answer the question. Canada's not moving on it because it's financial, right? They have too much to gain as being the only uh, shop in town in, in terms of the Canadian Stock Exchange to be able to pull the best and brightest of U.S. companies up there that don't want to wait for U.S. legalization. And so they're actually benefiting um, by you know the rest of the world remaining in prohibition. That's good commentary. Thank you, Riz. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that, you know, I I actually studied while in law school. I went to France to study international cannabis law, and it specifically was about all of these treaties. And the the fucked up thing is that the rest of the world isn't moving because the United States forced them into this international treaty while we still, you know, keep a schedule one at home and have most of our states already legalized. So it's hypocrisy at its greatest. We love our audience. Thank you so much. We are at time. So let's keep on smoking the news. Let's. Up next, she's a feisty, red-headed conservative with Mayflower roots, never backing down from a good debate with cannabis-loving peers across the aisle, whether they're liberals or anybody else. Coming to the stage is the founder of Phenoptic Strategies and the State of Cannabis News Hour's very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today, Gretchen? Uh, good afternoon, Rico. My headline today, it came from Marijuana Moment, but they really didn't do anything. They uh, linked to Muckrock, who then linked to their FOIA request. So it's not an article. But apparently back in 2018, BuzzFeed wrote an article um, about how the Trump administration wrote to all of its agencies and asked for a two-page brief on why cannabis is bad um, and to please tell us what they thought. Um, and this person who requested, made a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request, to the EPA uh, their response, I don't know if they just published it or why this is coming out now, uh, but Muckrock has released uh, what the two-page document from the EPA says. And basically, it's two pages of talking about how uh, pesticides are bad. There are no registered pesticides. What are we going to do? 
their uh, bullet point here, uh, I think, which kind of sums it up. EPA is concerned about the use of unregistered pesticides on cannabis because it poses potential and unknown human health concerns where pesticides are illegally used on cannabis plants that are later inhaled, applied dermally, and or ingested. Legal pesticide residues have been found on cannabis being grown for both medical and recreational uses. Given EPA's mission to protect both health and the environment, the agency considers the illegal use of pesticides on cannabis to be a threat to EPA's mission and pesticides program. Uh, The thing goes on to talk about how they can't monitor what's going on in the states and yada yada. I have one answer for these idiots. Legalize cannabis and then you can regulate the hell out of the pesticides and what's actually being used and consumed by people. This is a no-brainer and I think is pretty... uh, remarkable that our government is this inept. This scratching state camps new guy. And so since when do Republicans care about what the EPA thinks? It's, I, that's pretty I hilarious. I don't care about the EPA. But no, I know, but they're bring, that's what they use. That they're using the EPA as this reason. It's like, God, what a joke. They're grasping at straws, Eric. <laughs> Get whatever they can. Just really. to EPA. God. <laughs> I, I, did, I did have interaction with the Trump uh, White House when he came to cannabis and sat down with these folks. And they were clearly uninformed about the very basics, even CBD and THC they did not get. So maybe in good faith, they wrote to these people, tell us what's wrong with it and why we're not doing anything. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know because it's clearly they didn't use this as a campaign to say, no, we're not legalizing. This stuff never came to light. So I'm kind of interested in why these uh, memos were asked for by the administration there's no good faith in conservative politics well, let's remember too it was, it was after california when 64 went into effect in 2018 it was jeff sessions that wrote that note that basically was saying they were coming after our legal market and then that, lieutenant governor gavin newsom wrote wrote a letter back basically saying fuck you we're <laughs> you're not coming for us because we're going to keep this program jeff, jeff sessions never had the power to actually do anything because the rohrbacher far amendment prohibited him from doing anything cole memo never did shit for anybody so let's not let let's keep the well he was that that letter from him instructed the feds to go after states no, and they could no, make a lot of problems. no yes, that letter, no 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 eric that letter did not that letter said said to said that basically the Cole memo was was not to be enforced, but the Cole memo never had any enforcement teeth in it in the first place. Well, it's where the feds could put their assets. They can move those no. assets, whatever. They, no, yes, no, yes, no. They that's, can. Not, that's not how it works, Eric. It shows the, the intent. That, it shows the intent. The Cole the memo was just a memo on whether or not state's attorneys could go after prosecuting people. That's right. Exactly. But it was where the feds should direct their and, – and anyway, it shows intent, right? It well, shows the intent of the administration. Right. But the Cole memo was also, frankly, just you know, issued as political cover for the Obama administration who didn't want to take it a was, Well, it wasn't cover was when you're saying our, the Justice Department, the DOJ okay. is not coming after the states. That means something. No, the, the the money to not come after the states was Warbacher Farr. The Cole memo says states' attorneys do what you want, enforce the laws as you see right, fit. Right, that means Good something. That means something. You guys, I think we're at time on this. <clears throat> I just wanted to give Kimo an opportunity to weigh in. Yeah, um, the Cole memo didn't mean shit. Uh, within six months of that, I received a threatening letter from U.S. District Attorney Melinda Haig that I was going to face 30 years in the federal penitentiary if I didn't shut the divinity tree down. 30-day cease and desist. So that shit didn't mean shit. 
100% chemo. The call memo ain't worth shit. It ain't even worth the paper it's printed on. That shit was lukewarm. Let's get a room. All right. Fuck the fuck. He's a fifth generation. Uh, 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 uh. He's a fifth generation Californio and award winning journalist with a multicultural background. A writer, brand consultant, event promoter, content ninja, and freedom fighting farmer's friend. I tell y'all what. The correspondent we've got coming to the stage next does it all. He's the international man of truth, Eric Hiss Lareda. What you got for us today, my man? I do my best, Dope D. Um, anyway, this does mean shit. So um, my headline is from Yes Weekly, and it's 50 years ago, Congress's own expert commission demanded they repeal cannabis prohibition. So today, Tuesday, March 22nd, marks the 50th 5-0 anniversary of the day when the first and only Blue Ribbon Committee on Cannabis Policy formally recommended that Congress repeal federal penalties criminalizing the personal possession of cannabis. On March 22, 1972, the National Commission on Marijuana with an H and Drug Abuse, also known as the Schaefer Commission, issued its report, Marijuana, a Signaling, a signaling of Misunderstanding to Congress and to the Nixon Administration. Nine of the members of the commission had been handpicked by Nixon, including the commission chair, Raymond P. Schaefer, then governor of Pennsylvania. Members investigated the issue for two years prior to reaching their conclusion. So what happened? The committee rebuked claims that cannabis was a highly dangerous substance worthy of criminal prohibition. Rather, it determined, quoting, the criminal law is too harsh a tool to apply to personal possession, even in the effort to discourage use. It implies an overwhelming indictment of the behavior which we believe is not appropriate. The actual and potential harm of use of the drug is not great enough to justify intrusion by the criminal law into in private behavior, a step which our society takes only with the greatest reluctance. The commission therefore recommended that the possession of cannabis for personal use no longer be an offense and that the casual distribution of small amounts of cannabis for no remuneration or insignificant re remuneration no longer be an offense. So let, let me remind everybody that was 50 years ago today, 5-0. This policy recommendation, now commonly referred to as decriminalization, acknowledged that the use of cannabis was not altogether harmless, but recognized that its potential risks to both the individual and society were not so great as to warrant the criminal prosecution and incarceration of those who consumed it. Though this recommendation was ultimately rejected by Congress, several state governments began adopting this policy in the 1970s. Today, 32 states in the District of Columbia have enacted uh, legislation either legalizing or decriminalizing the use of cannabis for adults. Uh, here's a, an important quote. Uh, the commission's recommendation to end cannabis uh, possession arrest was totally unexpected at the time, with most observers anticipating the commission uh, to reinforce Nixon's exaggerated fears of cannabis and to continue to support criminal prohibition. The report was truly groundbreaking then, and it has stood the test of time and remains pertinent now, said Normal's founder, Keith Stroop, who testified on behalf of Normal in several meetings held by the National Commission prior to the publication of the the report. Stroop noted that since the commission in initially made its recommendations, an estimated 30 million Americans have been arrested for violating state and federal cannabis laws, and over 80% of those arrested over these past five decades were prosecuted for offenses related to the personal possession and use of cannabis, the very activities that the commission demanded be decriminalized. 
Um, Morgan Fox, Normal's political director, added, the fact that this report was ignored by the federal government for half a century while countless individuals' lives and entire communities were upended and marginalized by misguided cannabis prohibition policies is a stain on our country, but it doesn't have to continue. Congress has the opportunity now to maintain momentum for comprehensive reform that is centered on repairing these harms, and the American people deserve to know where their lawmakers stand on this issue. House leadership should move to hold a floor vote imminently on the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, the MORE Act. Pass the MORE Act. Decades of bad laws, millions of needless arrests, and, more, and broken lives need to be made right before the banking floodgates are open for the MSOs. And that's what I got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. That's amazing, Eric. Thank you so much for bringing this story. This is crazy that 50 years later we're in the same position. Is it really, though? <laughs> yeah, we're gone with you. I don't, I don't think it's that crazy. It's just more of the same. It's, we're just, <laughs> it's a head shaker. America is a, is a, America's a fucking rerun. <laughs> we're on it's repeat like, it's, all It's like Groundhog day. day. Well, that's what... Yeah, so my... Good morning. Hey, hey, everybody. Um, it is a Groundhog Day because the LaGuardia report pretty much said the same thing 80 years ago, and Anslinger ignored it back then. So it, we, we do just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Great um, point. Science shows, science shows that cannabis is safe and the politicians and whoever's paying them uh, want to keep so it. So when you hear people, that's a, a great point. And when, so when you hear people say, well, it's too soon, you know, we can't get expungement yet. We can't get equity yet. We can't get descheduling. F that. I mean, come on. Too soon? No. Yes. No, no more. No more. F that. And marijuana with an H. What the H? Well, we've reached past <clears throat> the halfway point, so we're going to quickly relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Up next, she's an attorney at law focusing on the nexus point between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. She's also the founder of Cannabis Blog and Podcast, Shall We Toke? Coming to the stage is Shalina Panu. What you got for us today, Shalina? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Nevada is finalizing cannabis consumption lounge rules. Today at 1 p.m., there will be a public workshop held by the Nevada Cannabis Compliance Board at the Grant Sawyer Building in the north of downtown Las Vegas. The purpose of this workshop is to further discuss the regulations around cannabis consumption lounges that are set to open this fall. As stated in Travel Weekly, the Nevada state bill is for on-site cannabis consumption lounges at either dispensaries or standalone lounges was passed last year. Since this bill passed, there have been numerous workshops and public meetings with stakeholders and the public to assist in drafting these regulations. Although it's taking a long time to establish these regulations, Nevada officials want to make sure they get it precisely accurate in the first go only. They are fully aware that the whole world is watching them finalize these rules because Vegas is a center of tourism, as travelers around the globe will now have more of a reason to visit. Further, this will set the framework for how cities and states will attempt to implement their own regulations for cannabis consumption lounges, hopefully in the future. According to 8 News Now, the purpose of today's workshop is to gather feedback from people in the cannabis industry, the public, and the local government. 
Some of the key points that need to be discussed and squared away is how to properly train lounge employees and how to regulate any air quality issues that may occur. Once they finalize these regulations, hopefully in the next few months, the board plans to start issuing out licenses for consumption lounges by the end of this year. So far, 45 dispensaries in Nevada have expressed interest. Dispensaries like Planet 13, who have already made their own products and sell them to the public, are looking forward to having a designated consumption lounge where people can actually consume on site. My name is Shlaine, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd like to say that uh, they did take it into consideration social equity, so they have an actual social equity carve-out for um, being able to get some priority for consumption lounge um, licenses, so we're happy to see that. It's not a perfect bill, not a perfect regulation, but that was their first stab at, at um, you know, social equity in the state of Nevada. Go ahead, Gerardo. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Uh, so I'll be attending that meeting today at one o'clock, uh, talking about the equality and the difference in having the 32 dispensaries already building out lounges for the last four and a half years. So Planet 13, the Source, uh, Reef, Cookies is about to build one. So everybody already knows who's getting them. It's just a matter of they try and shine the light on equality and equity. But when you're trying to push for $200,000 in liquid funds and over a million dollar in permits, we all know who's going to win. So right now, one of the people, our leaders, supposedly in our cannabis industry, uh, Tina Ullman will be up there. But she fights for the rights of dispensary owners to own lounges and to keep private farms and caregivers away from giving flour to lounges. So it's going to be more of dispensaries teaming up with their own cultivations to conquer the market. And unfortunately, uh, nobody speaks about how we can turn independent lounges and use those as um, Elks lounges. So we don't have to have consumption uh, sales of cannabis, but we're allowed to have them, have independent lounges, and we don't have to prove any income. We can do it low-key and be legal. But today's meeting is just going to be more of the runaround they've been giving us for two and a half years and just, you know, looking out for the big players, whether uh, and not really the people who are in jail and the people who fight this fight. And like me and the other 10 people who always go every meeting and try and change the rules. Um, So hopefully we do see a change. But with all the all the backstabbing and the political effects and people who can cut the ribbon and cut the rope to get there faster. I don't see it being too much of letting normal people who get the nine to five jobs open one as it is for planet 13 and cookies and Frank Lucas, who used to bring, who used to be a Raider player. They're going to get their dispensaries first. But listen, but listen dude, dude. I, I agree with you. But one thing you got to keep in mind is the fact that one thing, Nevada only has legislative session every other year. So you have to kind of almost try to plan in advance of what you're trying to do to expand the marketplace. And I, and I sat and had dinner with um, Assemblyman Yeager, and literally, this is not like the end-all, be-all. It was the first stab of trying to be able to open up the marketplace. And he knew he had to make concessions to some of the big players in order to get them and all of their lobbying money to agree and to make this happen. So I hear you 100%, but there's a process to progress and you got to start somewhere. And Nevada is a real janky state in regards to how it's set up. And prior to this time, there was no type of social equity, no type of economic opportunity for, um, um, you know, for those that are, you know, disproportionately and marginalized. So I just want you to stay encouraged, but know that it has to start somewhere. It's not a perfect bill. It's not perfect, but keep fighting. 
Just like safe banking, pass safe banking. I, I agree. Safe I, I agree with safe banking. I think it should get passed too. Gerardo, Gerardo, is uh, Commissioner Sigerbloom helping you guys? Yeah, no, he says he is, but he's really just going for Planet 13. Um, he'll put a little money in his pockets. There's a, one lawyer that goes up every session who represents 13 different dispensaries, and they also are trying to get lounges. And she's very connected to what we call the Nevada Dispensary Association out here. And the person that she was hooked up before um, was a leader of the NDA who is now the board member of the CCB who allowed the source and Planet 13 to get a little more ahead of the other dispensaries when that was coming through. But um, as far as our equality, one of the groups we have out here, which is a beautiful group, the CEIC of Nevada, Aisha Goins is the one of the presidents of that. And so she fought for anybody who's under the age of 18 and is colored uh, black or brown or low income. We are no longer charged as felons for having cannabis. Um, the next bill that she's pushing beside the dispensary bill is actually going to be a vendor's bill. So it's going to be for anybody low income who's been affected, no dispensary owners, none of those people. But it's going to be a bill that we're allowed to sell a pound at maybe a music festival, um, a comedy festival, something like that. The same way the beer people can come sell beer, we're able to go sell marijuana. So that's going to be the bill I know a lot of us out here are really looking at because we are discouraged about the dispensaries but like you said we gotta keep fighting the fight and just go with it thank you so thank much you so for much being, for our, being boots our boots on the ground let's keep smoking the news echo 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 <laughs> repping long beach california heavy our next correspondent is the ceo of fruit slabs a cannabis and intellectual property attorney and if you were ever to shave his beard you'd find one of three items a fist a roundhouse kick, or a cease and desist for infringing upon the vibes. Coming to the stage next, it's Brandon Dorsky. Thanks for having me today. My headline comes from Law 360. It's Georgia judge hits pause on prosecutor's Delta 8 THC crackdown. That's right. An Atlanta-based prosecutor has been temporarily barred from going after sellers of Delta 8 and Delta 10 THC products Two vape shops just won their bid for a temporary restraining order to prevent Gwinnett County District Attorney Patsy Austin Gatson's warpath against hemp-derived psychoactive compounds, or at least temporarily. The judge said, Plaintiffs will continue to suffer irreparable economic harm, reputational damage, brand erosion, loss of customers to stores in other counties, and the risk of having to close their business... Uh, <clears throat> until a temporary restraining order is issued. Judge Schwal also said the court finds that the threat of prosecution and civil asset forfeiture constitutes an ongoing and irreparable injury to plaintiffs that will continue, uh, that will continue before the defendant can be heard. SAS Group and Great Vape LLC are the two plaintiffs in the case, and they argued in court that small businesses have sold these products openly and publicly for two years based on a, quote, reasonable belief that those cannabinoids were legalized under Georgia law since they were sourced from hemp. The retail groups are claiming Austin Gatson's announcement that she would be arresting and prosecuting anyone selling products containing the hemp-derived THC compounds disrupted the status quo and needs to be restrained. The temporary restraining order was issued, but it expires on April 17th. 
Schwal's order extends to prosecutors pursuing civil asset forfeiture or criminal action in connection with any hemp-derived compounds. The shops claim that, quote, they lost roughly half of their source of income, they continue facing severe losses, and they face arrest, prosecution, and asset seizures if they wish to continue selling products that they were able to sell as recently as two months ago or that they could continue lawfully selling in the next county over. Unfortunately, Austin Gatson is on her high horse and told Law 360, quote, the law has to be adhered to, and the code specifically states that THC, no matter if it is derived from hemp or marijuana, is not legal in edibles unless there is FDA approval. No such approval exists. I'd say pay a close attention to this case. This looks, sounds, and feels like some major anti-cannabis government worker going full steam ahead on something that harms literally no one other than the pharmaceutical prison and tobacco industries that would like to see all cannabinoids remain some sort of crime. Smells like someone is doing the lobbyist work here. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I'd argue that Delta 8 uh, impacts and harms the credibility of licensed cannabis operators because of the lack of regulation. No licensed cannabis market in Georgia. Yeah, I, I think that it sets it open. You got Gwinnett County, which is a part of the greater Atlanta area. And for folks that live in Atlanta, I think that this is going to just trickle down to all the other different Well, yeah, and I'm, you know, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm learning a lot about the business side of cannabis through you all. And I thank you very much learning that, you know, business is able to sell Delta 8 undercuts the legal medical cannabis market. I, I get that. My, my, my slant is more about safety. I still encourage the um, people of Georgia to be very careful. Should this go through with your Delta 8 products? Because if you don't know how it's being made, there could be God knows what in it. I agree with what Jason and Dr. Felicia said. I think this does take away from cannabis and the medicinal benefits and the things that we know and hopefully won't move us backwards. And also to, to complain that you're losing almost half of your business, it, did you not go into your business realizing that you could do such a thing? So, I, I talked to some, some very interesting people on Delta 8 when I was down in uh, Texas for South by Southwest last, uh, last week. And... Um, even the people that are selling it, they're, they're saying that it needs to be fucking regulated. Um, I guess, like, anybody can buy the shit. There's, like, no age limit on buying Delta 8. So, technically, like, you can just go in there and buy it and not know what it is. There's no education on it. Just just smoke it and it, it might get you high. There's no age limit? Trapping Delta 8 at elementary schools across Texas. Straight up. What's oh in your lunchbox? Oh, my God. No, it is. You have, it's, it's not a smoke shop. You have to be, you know, if you go to a smoke shop, it's... No, it's not just What about gas shop. stations, it's Gas stations. It's, 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 it's in anywhere. It's everywhere. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's keep smoking the Delta 8 news. <laughs> it's infinite loop. All right, so... This former Northern California cop is a dope dad that traded in his gun and a badge for a blunt and a notepad. He's a cannabis security consultant for CC Security Solutions and our go-to guy on law enforcement stories from an insider's point of view. Up next is Chris Eggers. Happy, happy Taco Tuesday, Chris. What you got for us? Happy Taco Tuesday, Rico. My article today comes out of the Press Herald out of Maine. Burglary of Gorham Marijuana Shows. Risks involved in Maine's high-flying business, that's right, as pot businesses proliferate around the state, criminal activity has followed. So in this town of Gorham, Maine, one business was the victim of a band of audacious burglars who cut a hole in the side of a building to get into the valuable cannabis inside. 
The burglary team began with the sound of an angle grinder hauling against a metal door. Metal, sorry, against metal. Within minutes, they were inside. They were inside for a few hours before an alarm went off. And inside, they made off with nearly 30 pounds of marijuana flour, 500 cartridges valued at approximately $59,000. Now, since at least 2020, police believe that these burglars have been cutting their way into buildings that house grow operations uh, within the city of Gorham, Maine. Burglars are capitalizing on the legal marijuana market, they say, but no one knows what the extent of the problem is. And this is why I wanted to share this article. I find this very interesting because uh, these operators are required to report crimes against them. Uh, but law enforcement, as we'll get to in a second, does not maintain a database. Um so finally, after the alarm was tripped, the uh, burglars got away. Nobody knows what the extent of the problem is because, according to the Office of Marijuana Policy, the state's sole regulator for the legal marijuana uh, requires that licenses and license operators report these burglaries, robberies, and other crimes. And David Heidrich says that they do not maintain a list or any kind of database about these crimes. That means that no one knows whether these crimes against uh, cultivators are going up over time. He says, quote, we are not a law enforcement entity, and our role in regulating cannabis is to ensure licensees uh, and registrants compliance with Maine and adult use medical use of marijuana laws. He also says that thefts and burglaries are crimes, and the best source of information about criminal activity is and has always been law enforcement. I find this very interesting because it is required that these operators report these businesses, but everybody is just punting it, saying that we don't maintain a list. Law enforcement doesn't maintain a list, and neither does this regulatory agency. I think it's a two-way street, and I want to see law enforcement start to take these crimes seriously, investigate them seriously, as they do with other retail settings. Uh, I think it's super unfair. I wanted to share this article. Thank you for allowing me on stage. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Man, um... I don't know, man. Like people are getting burglarized all over the country. Like shit is bad. Gas prices are high. People need weed, and they, and they know exactly where to find cash strap businesses. So I don't, where, I don't know what the solution is, except for strapping the fuck up. Where where was this, Chris? In Gorham, Maine, outside of Portland, Maine. I think the lack of data really is a real huge issue here. I mean, you don't know who's being harmed and what's going on without any information. This seems like this is critical to be tracked and should be covered by the state's like medical marijuana or medical cannabis or regular cannabis commission. I couldn't agree more, Liz. That's why I wanted to share this article. I think it's kind of ridiculous. They're saying that they don't maintain a list, uh, but if, if folks are required to report right? How hard can it be to track it, right? And how useful can that information be to, you know, either conduct investigations or, you know, see what other data can be pulled from, from you know, the self-reporting of these crimes? All right. We've got two more stories. Let's keep smoking them. Let's. Now, she's a Florida-based entrepreneurial bouse leading the charge for ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. She's also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. And coming to the stage next, coming straight out of Florida, Roz McCarthy, what you got for us today? Florida. We say it, Florida. That's how we say it down here. What's going on? Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon on the East Coast. Um, my article is coming to you from the editorial board with the Emory Will, and it's entitled, Let's Be Blunt, Stop Calling Emory Police Department for Cannabis in Residence Halls. 
Now, I, why did I choose this? It's a little dated, but it's important because I got two kids in college. And for those of you guys who have kids in college or you got brothers and sisters or cousins or nieces or what have you, this is important. Under Emory's current policy, resident advisors, RAs, must report student con- cannabis possession or usage to the Emory Police Department, according to Scott Roush, Senior Director of Residence Life. Despite law enforcement's threat of involvement, Many students are not deterred from smoking cannabis or storing it in their residence. It's high time for the university staff to stop calling the police department when students are found in possession of cannabis. The, re- the legal repercussions of police involvement are stigmatizing due to the implications of criminal records, perceived threats to FAFSA, and other consequences related to educational and job opportunities beyond Emory. Moreover, the threat of punishment for students found with cannabis and drug paraphernalia on campus only creates greater stigma, which prevents these students from developing an honest understanding of the true effects of the drug and seeking help when necessary. So it goes on to say that cannabis misinformation and stigmatization have made the drug appear more appealing on social media. There has been an overarching increase in the use of of cannabis use for college students in the U.S. has increased with nearly half of all students reporting use in 2020, a sizable increase from the last three decades. It would be naive to think Emory is an exception in that trend. You walk into any residence hall across campus, irrespective of year, and you will likely find someone smoking weed. Um, When RAs involve the police with incidents of student cannabis possession, it leads to the escalation of an already fraught situation, putting students in direct contact with potentially aggressive law enforcement. And this is even more important for our black and brown students who at times can be targeted or at times can, um, again, be made to feel even more uncomfortable. Um, A lot of the black and Latino RAs are uncomfortable with EPD being present in these situations. A lot of black and Latina uh, Latinx residents are uncomfortable with the police department being present. But so it's kind of whose comfort and safety is being valued and whose comfort and safety is being ignored, says the police department. Um, One of the issues, a mere concrete step toward progress would be changing enforcement to reflect the university's stance on underage drinking. As it stands, students who are underage and caught with alcohol must pour it down the drain, while an RA who is present um, while, while an RA is present, I, I pose a couple of different things for you to think about. You know, what do we do with our students who are living on the dorms and wanting to consume, especially in adult use state, how to take them? Should colleges reform and laws that support these students? And, you know, how will, how will um, I'm saying enforcement make a difference? Roz, I was present when um, they passed the Atlanta decrim uh, law and Councilwoman Mayor soon to be Mayor Bottoms, really cautioned the audience because everybody's all happy. She said, this is, this is not um, a panacea. If you get pulled over by Atlanta City Police, you may not be in trouble. But if you pull over by college police or state police, you still could get in trouble. So she was very clear about that. And it, it, it is clearly for our students, if you get caught and you are jailed or incarcerated, it affects your financial aid, your whole entire, you know, um, your your progress in school. So these are something that, you know, again, how do we protect this class of individuals who are adults and especially in an adult use state may want to have the option of consuming cannabis. Can you imagine if binge drinking was illegal, all of the white students going to jail 
I mean, there would just be an outcry. But we need to keep moving to so we can get to Adelia's story. Let's do it. So she's the CMO of award-winning tech platform Event High and co-host of the groundbreaking women-focused Blunt Brunch event series. Taking us home today is one of my fave people in the biz for nearly six years now. Up next is Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us today, Adelia? Hey, hey, everyone. So today, today's title is Coming West Hollywood Cannabis Lounge Promises Skyline Views and Private Dining by The Eater LA, written by Mona Holmes. West Hollywood's consumption lounges are finally moving forward to opening again, and The Antidote has recently released plans to open up in a historic building near the famous music venue Trabador. Construction will begin in late 2022. What we can expect, Antidote will be a two-level space feature of massive 6,000-square-foot non-cannabis restaurant, along with an attached consumption lounge space and private rooms for group gatherings. Originally, Antidote was approved for edibles only. However, the city of West Hollywood made changes in the license. For Antidote, the city of West Hollywood capped the smoking lounge to no more than 1,500 square feet, hence the no-smoking restaurant space that's also on site. Uh, They also will have a retail space and a drinking area called Pure Bar. Um, A few things to notate. The actual restaurant cannot include cannabis until state state and local laws are changed to allow the operation to grow, which means no on-site consumption. But yes, there's a full bar. Cannabis consumption must be in a specific smoking lounge area or private rooms. They also were actually highlighted in a report from the City of uh, West Hollywood Cannabis Business License screening applications, and they were the top scoring applicants. There's four owners. Um, uh, Two of them bring experience from the restaurant, entertainment, and hospitality industry. The other one is a practicing attorney with significant cannabis experience. And the final gentleman is a founder and president of Marathon Communications, a local public affairs and strategic communications firm. Also highlighted in the report was that they have a commitment to purchase all cannabis products from small-scale cannabis cultivators. 100% of all cannabis sold will be naturally produced without use of pesticides or harmful or inorganic chemicals. The antidote will also pay full wages to all employees to perform 40 hours of community work in West Hollywood each year. And they will also donate 10% of its profits to nonprofit organizations either located in West Hollywood or that serve the city's population. They're also going to work with Lyft to provide customers with heavily discounted or free ride to and from the antidote. Um, And this is Adelia reporting from the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm excited to see their highlights. And, you know, I think these are things that should be notated, but it also kind of makes sense of what they're building to incorporate those. Um, But yeah. This is Adalia. That's all I can we say. A quick, can, can we get a quick 30-second uh, comment from the, the mayor of Weed Town, uh, uh, Jason? Yes, yes, please. Yes, Rico. So, uh, Adelia, first off, it is the Troubadour that is located next to it. It's a most very popular music venue that's hosted concerts there for years. Um, I think this, this restaurant is going to be a huge success in West Hollywood. I can't wait for them to be able to open up their doors and see what they're going to bring to the table. Uh, this is, comes from a group that's very uh, experienced in the hospitality space. And so I'm really excited to see what, what they're going to bring. And with that rooftop venue, it's just going to be fantastic. It's going to be right on the corner of Santa Monica and Doheny. So when they do open, I hope you do stop by and check them out. I think it's going to be pricey, but I can't wait to do an event there. That was Good a really great show. If you- things aren't good, Susan. 
Okay, take it from you. Yes. Anyway, that was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Bye, bye, bye. Instinct for life.